If I'm guilty of anything with my kids, it's probably that I'm guilty of spoiling them. One of my love languages is gift giving, and probably over the years I've given them far more than they needed, and certainly far more than they deserved. (laughs) Anyways. But I have to tell you, even in that generous spirit that I have, which probably led to the spoiling of my kids just a little bit, one of the things that would always irk me was when they would just lie around and do nothing when they were capable of doing something. And so when both of my boys got to the summer between their 10th and 11th grade in high school, I told them if they didn't find a job, a part-time job for the summer, said I was going to give them a job. And they would probably rather work for somebody else than for me. And so one of them... He didn't, take, he, didn't, he didn't take to that too well. So he landed up having to work for me. You know, and I told him, I said, you know, you've got to get up out of the morning. I want you on the job and working by 8 o'clock. You know, in the summertime, I don't know if you had, how long it's been since you had teenagers, but 1 p.m. is early to get up for most teenagers in the summer. So, you know, on the job at 8 o'clock. And so the assignment that he drew was to prime the house. It needed to be painted. So I figured if you're priming it, you really can't do much damage. Boy, was I wrong. We still have white paint all over stuff, you know, and the foundation and the posts, whatever. But their job was, to, his job was to, to prime the house. Now, I was trying to teach him a good work ethic. Now, if I had given the, him that job, say, I want you to prime the house, because I was making him do it, would, would, would I have been fair if I said, I'm not going to give you a ladder, I'm not going to give you any paint, I'm not going to give you any brushes or rollers or spray guns or anything else, you're just going to paint the house. I mean, I was trying to teach him a lesson, but... I really wouldn't have been doing very many favors. I wouldn't have been fair if I hadn't given him the tools to do the job, correct? In the same way, I think, that as we read in the book of 1 Peter, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And with that, this expectation that we will live with hope, that God calls upon us to gird up the loins of our mind and to be sober-minded or self-controlled and to set our hope completely set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it would be unfair of God to expect us to be a people who live with hope, who concentrate, dwell on hope, if he hasn't given us the tools to be a people who live with hope, right? I I think that one of the reasons why you and I struggle to be a people who live with hope in a discouraging world, and, and I don't think we really need to have much debate as to relates to the fact that the world can be a very discouraging place. Spiritually, economically, socially, the list just could go on and on. It can be a very difficult place. It can be a very discouraging place. But I believe that God has given us the ability, He's given us the tools to be a people who live with hope. And one of the reasons why we struggle to live with hope is that we haven't embraced those tools. We haven't learned how to use those tools in our own lives. So today, in the time that we have, I'd love to talk to us about the ways that God has altered us so that we can be a people who live with hope. The way that God has resourced us, He has given us the tools that we need to be a people who live with hope. So I've labeled or entitled this sermon today in our series of Living with Hope in a Discouraging World. I've called it Alterations. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to the first chapter, second chapter of First Peter. If you have, you're using one of our pew Bibles today, you'll find your, our text on page 1,028. We, we, don't, we would love for you to become a Bible expert as a part of a worshiping and fellowshipping with Hope Chapel on a regular basis, but you do not need to be a Bible scholar to join with us, and so it's one of the reasons why we point out the, the passages, because you may not know where First Peter is, and hopefully over time you will come to learn, but this text is on page 1,028. I want to read verses 1 through 11 of Second Peter. 
I will refer back to verse 22 in chapter 1 at one point, but you'll see it's right there on the same page with you. So picking up with the first verse of 1 Peter 2, God says to us through the Apostle Peter, So rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk. I think his reference there is to the Word of God, the things that are spiritual that come from God, so that you may grow by it for your salvation, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Coming to Him, a living stone, rejected by man but chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through faith in Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and an honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him shall never be put to shame. And there's a tremendous story about the construction of the temple that we could tell underneath related to that passage. Verse 7, So the honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the believers rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they destroy the message. They were destined for this. But you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possessions, so that you may proclaim the praises of the One who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers... And temporary residents, I like the word aliens better, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against you. May God add the, his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray for just a minute. God, right now, I pray that you just give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand some truths that can change our lives. We know that's what you want to do. You want to change us so that you can bless us. So God, answer our prayer today as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God has given us this job to do. That job is to live with hope in a discouraging world. To be a people who embody this living hope that we've been born anew to. That we're a people who can fixate our hope on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how has God equipped us to do that? What tools has God given us? Well, since we're the ones who have to do the hoping, we're the ones who have to do the focusing, God has to change us because we are the tool. Well, how is it that God has changed us to be a people? How is it that God has altered our DNA so that we can be a people who live with hope in a discouraging world? And this list probably isn't exhaustive, but I think it's a a great list for us to consider. And let me say something today. I think as I was preparing this message, I thought that this is just a great checklist to go back and say, is this happening in my life? And what does that say about my faith? Do I have faith? Is it an active faith? Is it a healthy active faith? I think this is a great checklist to work through. The first thing I tell you, as I looked at this passage of Scripture, is that one of the ways that God alters us so that we are a people who can live with hope in a discouraging world is that God chases, changes, God alters our taste buds. Now, some of you are saying, I knew he was going to get the food again. You know, because I always talk about food, right? But look at verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, above all, you know, put away malice and slander and envy and long for the pure, pure spiritual milk of the word. Why? Since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Believe it or not, that God changes the taste buds of our lives. And as we embrace that taste, those taste buds, if you will, that we actually come to favor 
something different. It equips us to be a people who, who can live with hope in the midst of a discouraging world. Look at verse 10. You know, he talks about the, what, the things that we have tasted. And, you know, once at a point in time, we were just scattered. We were no people. We were in this all by ourselves. It says, now you've tasted that God has taken you who were not a people, and he has made you the people of God. Not only do we have a family on this planet, but we have an eternal family that we're never going to be able to get away from. That God has chosen us, and we are part of that. We are part of the family, the people of God. We've tasted what that's like. It says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once we were just looking around at our lives and saying, boy, I got this problem, I got this problem, this is wrong with me, these are the things that I've done wrong, things I can never change, things I'd like to have back, and what am I going to do about any of that? And then we've tasted that God just wipes it all away because of the precious lamb that was crucified on the cross that we read about in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Now you take those things and you contrast that to the appetizers that the world tries to entice us with. At the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These are some of the tools that people use to try to get ahead, to somehow to serve themselves, to create some satisfaction, get this idea that they're somehow getting ahead. It's, it's all these things that we do to try to jockey our way to the front that somehow or another we can satisfy our own desire. When we read about the very first miracle in the Gospel of John, it's when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And you know how that story goes where at the beginning they're serving the wine, they run out, Jesus' mother comes to him and says, you know, they've run out of wine. And Jesus takes the, the six jars that, are, that were used for the purification as the people arrived at the wedding. He has them filled with water. And, with the, and then they, he turns them into wine. And when the wine is served, it's way better than the first wine. And the whole symbolism there is that the, the old wine, the wine that was served first, represented the covenant of law where we had to try to do stuff on our own to try to satisfy God and it was the idea of life was based on our own works our own efforts but the new wine that's the covenant of grace where God has purified us himself and that tasted so much better how does this work to make us a people who can live with hope in the midst of a discouraging world you know you ever been out on vacation you know and your kids are kind of young they're six eight ten and, and there, you know, you want to go out for a nice meal, but you just know that about the time they get done with taking the salads off the table, the kids are going to be ready to go. You know, they're squirming and saying, how much longer are we going to be here? So you say, you know what, we're going to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, but a gourmet one. You know, they got prime rib, they got shrimp, you know, they got exotic, you know, um, tropical fish. They got all the good stuff, you know. And so you go to the restaurant and you pay nine ninety five to get your kid in. And so you sit down, you figure out your table, you get your drinks, and they all, you just all spread out to go get your food, and they come back to the table, and they got a huge mound of macaroni and cheese. You, you know, you're thinking to yourself, this is the most expensive macaroni and cheese that I've ever, you know, ever bought, you know, because that's what they like, right? I mean, that's, it's not the macaroni and cheese doesn't taste good. I mean, I, I like macaroni and cheese. It's not good for me, you know, and all that kind of good stuff, but, but, you know, but when you go and you get food. I mean, you're getting the prime rib. You're getting the shrimp. Why? Because you know that stuff is more expensive. You're not going to waste your appetite on the stuff that's cheap, stuff you can get anyway, but you want the good stuff, right? That same application comes to us. When we've tasted that God is good, that's what our appetite's for. Even though the macaroni and cheese and the other kinds of stuff that might be out there on the counters for us to take, we, we walk right by that stuff because we know that the stuff of God tastes the best. And i got to tell you, when we are longing for the things of God and not longing for the things of the world, as God transforms our taste buds, we no longer 
long for those things, but we truly take great delight. I think one of the ways is we see in First Peter that God alters our taste buds. So that which before maybe we didn't prefer, but now it, bring, it is the thing that we look forward to. He talks about in chapter 3 that, you know, that we shouldn't suffer for doing good, but, now that, but if we suffer for righteousness, in verse th- uh, chapter 3, verse 14, 15, but if we suffer for doing what's right, if we suffer for righteousness, we're blessed. And that tastes good to us. The suffering, the difficulty, the stuff that causes discouragement actually is transformed. And now it's something that we like because it gives us the opportunity to honor who God is. See, God changes our taste buds because we've tasted that the Lord is good. But God also alters our heartland, our citizenship, the place where we feel at home and with that what we value and what we pursue. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2 that we read just a minute ago. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers... And as temporary residents or as aliens to abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against your soul. When you and I experience saving faith in Christ, when you and I are redeemed, where God has caused us by our faith in Christ to be born anew according to His eternal plan, you and I, our citizenship has changed. We get a brand new passport. You know, and, and with that, our heartland has changed. The, the place that's, that we feel at home, the thing that matters to me... Now, let me give you just a little bit of an example. You know, I was in Rwanda recently for 33 days. Most of you know that. Some of you are getting sick of hearing about it, and it will pass away after a while. But I was there for 33 days. At the end of those 33 days, I was ready to go home. I was ready to hop on a plane and come home to an empty house because my wife was on vacation in Florida, and I had to drive myself home from the airport. No, no, no. Anyway, I'm just giving her a hard time. But I was still ready to come home even though it was an empty house. I did go out to... Texas Roadhouse and have a prime rib that night. So that, that was a good set. Because I have, my, my taste buds have been transformed after being in Rwanda. <laughs> How's that a nice segue right there anyway? But I was coming back home. While I was gone twice, Joel Gray came and preached for you. His kids are American citizens. They've grown up in Burkina Faso. Most of his kids were born in Africa. They're here. They want to go back home. They're living in Wareham down the foot of the cave. They want to go home. Because this isn't home to them. Wagadugu is home to them even though they're U.S. citizens. When God enters into our lives, He changes our heartland. And with that, the things where we, we're just temporary living, it, it, it doesn't matter to us as much anymore. And it doesn't have the power to discourage us anymore. Because our hearts are in heaven. Our hearts are with God. We're, our hearts are invested in all of eternity. The, the stuff that goes on just for the little while while we're here on the planet, it just doesn't have the same power of, over us anymore. And it can't discourage us. How would I illustrate that? Can I, can I use a little bit of a trivial illustration, but hopefully it'll communicate? Some of you in here are like me. You're avid football fans. Any of those? I know we got a few, right? Remember back when the Patriots were 16-0 and and they marched their way through the playoffs and they got to the Super Bowl and they lost? I was devastated. I was in mourning for days. Literally, I was depressed. I was, you know, which isn't a good thing, but I was depressed because it mattered to me. I couldn't talk about it for weeks. People started bringing it up. I had to walk away. I just, I just, you know, it's just odd because it got to me. Some, who are you are not football fans? Lots of you, right? Did you care? Your days went on like normal, right? It didn't in fact impact you at all. You know, when, when, when we're invested in this world, where this world is home, the stuff that happens around us, it gets to us. It depresses us. It leaves us speechless because we just can't talk about it. But when our hearts are invested in heaven, stuff that goes on around us just doesn't impact us anymore. Life just kind of goes on. It loses its power to discourage us. Now, I'm not trying to trivialize the problems that we encounter in this world, but we're so 
dominated by our new residency, it just doesn't get to us anymore. Just a couple more things. God not only alters our taste buds, so that the things that once were discouraging now actually taste good to us. Here's part of the reason why. God has altered our life purpose. Look at verse 9. He says, said, but you are a chosen race. You're a whole royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. A people for His possession so that you may proclaim the praises or the excellencies of the One who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Back up to verse 3. Sorry, verse 4. 5. Sorry, verse 5. You yourselves as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. And what's this holy priesthood supposed to do? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, God changes our life purpose. Let me, let me summarize. And, 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 I mean, this could be a whole series. It could be a, a lifelong journey. But let me summarize the miraculous transformation that happens when Christ enters into our life by a saving faith, by a redeeming faith. When you and I are born anew to a living hope, our life orientation completely changes. We, f- we move away from having, focusing on having our needs met and somehow thriving in this world. And our life orientation, our life passion, desire comes to having God's name glorified and honored in all that happens in the world. Now that, that's a huge transformation. Long story. Let me just leave it there. But when that, that kind of stuff is happening with us, uh, the, the whole taste, if you will, of the experiences that we're going through changes. Because... Because then we realize that the good moments and the hard moments, the things that encourage us and the things that discourage us, they're all great opportunities for us to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And you know what's strange? Is that the discouraging moments are more powerful platforms from which to make that proclamation. It's a place for us to declare that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. i got one last one, just real quickly. I'm going to back up to verse 22 of chapter 1. It's on the same page, page 1028. God not only alters our taste buds, the things that we're really, what our appetite really is, not only changes, you know, our, our, our life purpose. God not only changes our citizenship, but God also changes our relationships. It says, by obedience to the truth, and what he's really talking about here, by our reception of the gospel, that the only way for you and I to be, have a lifelong, an eternal life is to have a personal faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. It says, by our obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for a sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from the heart. When you and I enter into a relationship with God, we move from not being the people of God to being the people of God, from not having tasted mercy to having tasted mercy. God does a work inside of us, and He gives us a heart to love other believers, to love the people of God. And relationships always transform our experience. You know, the saying I love is that relationships double our joy and they divide our grief. You know, and later he's going to talk about in chapter 5, verse 9, that he says, you know, you, you, you know this stuff that's going on, you, you, it's, it's happening to the people of God all over the world. So you know you're not alone anymore. You're, you're in that consolidated group that's proclaiming God's excellencies because God's transformed. He's altered our relationships. And with that, it divides our grief. And allows us to live with hope in a discouraging world. You see, God has given us the tools to be a people who can live with hope each and every day. Are these alterations evident in your life? Are you able and are you actually living with hope in a discouraging world? You can. In fact, God wants you to and God has equipped you to if you have a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you do not have that faith, we invite you 
as a body who stands on that faith to receive it into your life today. There's resources out in the lobby we'd love for you to have and take with you. could help you grow in your faith. But, you know, there's lots of ways to express how it is that we enter into a saving faith with Jesus Christ. Let me simply use this acronym this morning, the ABCs. We need to acknowledge our need for God by acknowledging our sin that's in our lives. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He lived a sinless life and offered Himself up as a sacrifice for us, and to understand that He is the only way through which we can have eternal life in a relationship with God. And we need to confess in our hearts, in our minds, and with our lips in our lives that we have made Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. And if those things are sincere and real in our lives, we're not just going through the motions, but we're, God enters in and He changes us, He alters us, and He changes our taste buds. Because we've tasted that the Lord is good. He's made us strangers and aliens, even within the skin, in the places where we've always lived. He alters our relationships and gives us a love for one another. A love that feeds us encouragement and empowers us to live with hope in a discouraging world. And he gives us a brand new, brand new life purpose, which is to proclaim his excellencies from the wonderful platform, which the world would say would be a discouraging place. How does God do this? We read this in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1. For you know that you were redeemed. You were not, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with like the precious blood, which were represented on our table this morning, of the bread and the cup, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, a, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. May all of us experience God's alterations in our lives today. Let's pray together and then go to the Lord's Supper. Lord, thank you. That you've not only called us, but you've equipped us. You've resourced us. You've given us all the tools we need to be a people who live with hope. You know, Father, I think I, as I pray for myself, I think I speak for many here, that there are many days which I, where, in which I don't live with hope. That this great gift that you've given us of, of altering who we are, changing our life DNA at, at just the foundational level, we reject those tools. We don't turn to them. And then we struggle to live with hope. God, it, there's only two types of people here today. Those of us who need to acknowledge that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the only way to live with hope. We pray you'd work in their lives and bring them and that they would accept a saving faith in Christ. And then there's those of us who have already made that choice, who confess you to you today, that we need to grow and respect our salvation. As we come to your table today, Father, we acknowledge both of those things as we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I'd like to invite